Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, a new documentary begins streaming on HBO called Simple as Water. It gives a quiet and intimate look at the experiences of four different Syrian families trying to carve out lives in different parts of the world. The film is quiet in that it's not narrated, creating a rare level of intimacy between subject and viewer. And it's by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Megan Mylan, who joins us now. Megan Mylan, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to have you. And congratulations on this really beautiful documentary that took you to five countries, including the U.S., to document these refugees' lives. Can you just give us a little sense of the scope and length of time it took to put this together? Sure. Um, well, you know, I think of Simple as Water as really a love story celebrating the bonds of family. And as you mentioned, it's told through portraits of families filmed in five different countries. Um, it took us five years, not necessarily because of the filming, but we, once I decided on the approach of the film that I was going to come to it uh, through the point of view of parenthood, with the mm. massive scale of the Syrian displacement and all of the layered impact that war and displacement does on families, we spent a lot of time in pre-production trying to figure out what were some of the common threads that we needed to be looking for and then doing the relationship building um, that it takes with families in you know, such fragile and intense situations in order to be able to make this very intimate film. So it was many um, a year and many a month of um, scouting and relationship building. Um, and then of course, documentaries like this take a long time in the edit too. So it was about five, five years. I had a three-year-old uh, when I began and I have a nine-year-old now, so five and change. Wow. Well, one of the first, the first person we meet in this film is Yasmin, who is living in a tent at a dockyard in Athens, Greece. What can you tell us about her and where she is in this moment in her life when the documentary opens? Yeah, so we, um, Yasmin was part of you know, the very intense wave of Syrian families who had managed to escape a war zone um, with their children. Her husband had gone ahead um, to make sure the passage was safe, uh, even though it involved, you know, in order to get into the EU, they had made it out of Syria and to Turkey safely. But then in order to get into the EU, in order to make it to Greece, had to negotiate with smugglers um, for that boat passage. And so her husband, Safwan, had gone ahead to Germany, which is very typical, not just of the Syrian experience, but of displacement. And then Yasmin and the children came behind 
And by the time they arrived, borders had closed. And so this family is then separated and sort of in a state of limbo um, by, you know, sort of Kafkaesque bureaucracies and border policies that open and close on a whim. And so she is, I, I think of the opening scene, you see the children at play, but yes. in a very industrial port setting. And for me, her face is like a mother bird. She is just watching. She's letting her children go out and, and be free and independent. And um, I, for me, that opening scene really layers all of what I was trying to say in the film and that, you know, that a child's right to joy um, and, and, and safety at the same time. And, and um, she's, for me, she's she's doing that in that moment, letting them play, but with all of these layers of challenge on top of it, and and overcoming just you know loss of of, of things that are vital to them, really unspeakable levels of loss. Yes, and as I mentioned earlier, the film is not narrated, so you're watching this unfold, and and you're just watching the interactions that she has with the kids because there is no mediator between the viewer and the subject, it creates an intimacy that I hadn't expected. And I wondered, did you plan to do it that way from the very beginning? Or did you decide to do it in a non-narrated form once you started collecting the footage? Yeah. Um, that was very intentional. That's, I've been making films for a couple of decades, and I film um, exclusively in this sort of obs observational cinema verite, um, very intimate character-driven style. It felt appropriate for this story, too, just because there's so many layers to it. And trying to enter sort of this sacred space of family, I felt like it was a lot of very small moments. This isn't really a film driven by plot points, um, nor is it a news report. It's, it's very much about sort of the daily interactions um, and touch and facial expressions. So I felt like it was a good fit for the style that I already really love working in. And, and to echo what you said, one of the things I appreciate about it is that it allows the audience to come to the film with their own life experience and layer that in. And so everyone really has a different experience of the film. It's, it's, you know, sort of no longer my film now, it's the audience's <laughs> film and, and they make their own meaning out of it. And, you know, we've done our job right in, in collecting the right stories and having the, the themes that are true to the experience of displacement, you know, children taking on adult responsibilities and um, gender norms flipping as women are, are the, you know, sole breadwinners and sole parents um, and, and the dealing with the unknown, uh, a lot of unknowns. Um, of family separation. Um, and, and I should mention, since this is something that you do in previous films, your previous films, which include Lost Boys of Sudan and Smile Pinky, and maybe listeners, you have mm -hmm. seen these films and have questions for Megan Mylan about them, or if you have comments or reactions to what you are hearing about showing the lives of Syrian families, one in Syria, three Syrian refugees um, in different parts of the world, from Greece to Turkey to even the United States. You can call us at 866-733 if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786. That is 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. 
Megan, you mentioned children, you showed children taking on more adult roles, and there is um, an incredible story in your film of a single mom in Turkey who works in the fields and understands that she cannot take care of the children because her hours are, you know, daybreak to very late or just incredibly long. And her eldest son, Faez, takes care of uh, the three other young siblings, young boys. Can you talk about the relationship to each other and why are you really focused on this moment of her trying to get Faez to go to the orphanage? Yeah. So, you know, one of the through lines of this are, you know, parents trying to make good decisions with bad options and often, you know, not full information either. And, and Samra's story was very much that of really no good options. She was widowed. Her husband was taken by the regime and, and never seen again. And she and her children, all, all her all boys, um, made it across the border into Rehanli, Turkey. But then she was alone and having to leave at four in the morning to go out and work in the field. And her eldest 12-year-old um, having to be caretaker of his younger siblings and not able to go to school. And so, you know, she, of course she wanted to keep her family intact, but she was afraid for their safety. And so there's a center that's sort of a boarding school slash orphanage. They refer to it as an orphanage, but it's not that the children would necessarily be adopted away, but it would be, they would live there and she would be, and they would, you know, have um, running water and electricity and, 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 and somebody watching them, adult supervision and access to school. But the one thing her 12-year-old Fayez still has is his mother and his siblings. And he is such a wise old soul. I mean, it was, I, I kept working with our translators, asking them to do another pass on his translation, saying he sounds too mature. He doesn't sound like a 12-year-old. And they said, no, he is speaking in this very mature, you know, it's accurate. And it's just this burden, you know, I, I mean, I, I imagine all of your listeners, we, you know, all feel that children should be able to move out of innocence slowly and at their own pace. And, and of course, children who experience conflict and war have that ripped from them. And just, you know, on Fayez's face, I think you see the weight of the world and on his mother's, you know, and so it's really, it's really a, um, kind of a relationship of the two of them jointly trying to decide what is best for their family. Yes, there is a moment when he says something like about his younger brothers. He says, I want to be their father. I don't want them to feel they have lost their dad. And to think of a 12-year-old mm -hmm. yeah. taking that on um, yeah. is is really, really breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, and it's, you know, one of the things I, I think that I hope comes through with each of the family stories and was very important to us is that it's not just about surviving, they want to thrive. And I think Fayez, you know, in his heart knows that the most important thing to him is what he has left of his family intact. And that there's nothing that's going to allow him to be further separated and that for him to thrive. He needs that. It's not a, there's not a right or a wrong answer though, you know, and people who watch the film, you know, some say, absolutely, they must stay together. And others say, but of course they need safety and education. And, you know, my, my response is, why are we living in a world where that's a choice that has to be made? 
Well, this listener writes, how does the filmmaker handle the emotions that must come from interviewing and meeting people who are in some of the worst moments of their lives? Does it stay with her? Does she feel helpless? How does it affect you, yeah. Mary? Um, all of those things. I mean, it's, um, it's, um, I mean, I think I get drawn into stories that feel worth um, all of my energy and all of the people. There's a massive constellation of people who came together to make this film um, and who I leaned on and who built relationships with these families. And so I was very slow to decide to do this film just because of the intensity of that pain and wanting to make sure I was entering people's lives in a way that would be meaningful. It wasn't a film where I could say, oh, if only the world knew what was going on, we could change everything. I do believe this, this film will help spark conversations about displacement, about family separation, but it was, it's not you know, a very straight, quick line. So I worked very hard to collaborate with people who are human beings first and that we care desperately about our craft filmmakers second. And we build relationships cautiously with people who find meaning in their choice to share their story mm. and to collaborate with us. And so, you know, there are relationships that predate filming and go on afterwards, not all at the same level, but I, it's, it's, that's um, sort of how I navigate that. And every film is different, but absolutely they, they stay with you. And there are things you can do to make individual lives better, you know, once the filming's over, but it's, um, it's a very delicate, constantly evolving relationship and it's just about being absolutely as respectful and giving them they're in charge at every moment they're choosing what layers of themselves to share with me and therefore with the audience the film is simple as water it's a documentary that focuses on four families profoundly affected by the decade-long war in syria which displaced millions outside and inside Syria as well. I think I've seen stats of 13 million. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It, to that end, what, what did you have to do to get the trust of some of the people? Like what were some of the most challenging moments? What was it that you often found would help them feel that it was worth it to share this story? Yeah. So the way, um, as I referenced before, we did lot of months and months of pre-production and so the first calls were to Syrians who had first-hand experience with this that I connected with through some um, relationships I had from Lost Boys of Sudan in the refugee space advisors and every conversation led to two more conversations and so it's really like a deep dive learning tour about you know the sensitivities that, that you need and then collecting uh, our crew and our team and so we had two syrian co-producers who worked across stories and then each vignette each chapter each country had its own small team and it was really this combination i mean one of the horrible things of the syrian conflict is that half of the country has been forced to flee for our film's advantage we had our choice of amazing syrians in every country to work with and it was really partnering them often with a freelance journalist or someone working in the NGO or trauma space who would go out and start conversations with families. And there was, you know, sadly, there were so many families to choose from that it was really not, um, we didn't push oh, wow. anyone to choose to. They had to, you know, just, 
I mean, it wasn't like a one day thing, you know, yes, yes, many, yes, you know, month relationship building. Um, and, and, and then just, and then you, you find families who are experiencing the layers that you're trying to capture. Um, and then also just have that magic of presence. That's so important for a film like this, like Fayez, the 12 year old boy. I mean, I feel like you could just sit on his face for 10 minutes and have, you know, have a, have a, a scene. He's got so much going on. And then his smile is so expansive and joyful when his, you know, little siblings accomplish things. So it really was through our Syrian crew that we were able to, um, you know, and, and just conversations, you know, and helping them understand our intentionality and that I came to this film as a mother, um, you know, that parenthood changes the way you see the world, both its joy and its injustices. And uh, I found that sort of primal place of um, shared experience with, yes. a, with a good entry point with the parents in the film. And when you talk about the layers, it's so true. It feels like we are dropping in on one small chapter in their lives. And it isn't necessarily the most traumatic. It's just the just trying to survive, <laughs> trying to carve out a life right. and trying to keep your family together. Why the title Simple as Water? So the title comes from a collection of Syrian poetry, the full title of which is Simple as Water, Clear as a Bullet. And um, one of our Syrian advisors had shared it with me. And what it does for me is, as I was saying, I came to this with just that deep, elemental, essential feeling and power of a parent's love to move forward, um, to be present, to be undeterred, and, and like water, um, which has that force and is something that is so vital and elemental and essential to us when we have it, but maybe we take it for granted and then when gone, um, like family. So it just felt right and it felt not too precise. Um, the <laughs> film is trying, you know, this is one take on this very multifaceted um, complex issue. And so it felt like uh, it had some openness to it as well. Yes. And uh, I want to remind listeners, Simplest Water streams on HBO Max tomorrow. We have a minute left. Did your perception, you talk about as a parent, you approach this and, and, and how you found meaning in, in the interactions of these families from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Did your perception of the war and its profound and far-reaching impacts change or surprise you? I, I, think, the, I think the resilience is something that I, I had, of, of, you know, and determination to make life good is something that I had experienced in my time making Lost Boys of Sudan, but it really amazes me. I mean, of course, <laughs> of course, that's what people do. But the ability to move past, you know, the loss of something vital um, and look forward um, was, was profound for me. Well, Megan Mylan, thank you for putting this into the world. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Great to talk with you. Yeah, Megan Mylan, her new documentary is Simple as Water. Check it out tomorrow. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.